In a previous interview, Sue Moen from the Campbell River and District Coalition to End Homelessness said the roots of our current real estate crisis are in decades of government policy. The following broadcast from Vancouver Co-op Radio explores this idea in more depth. I'm Macy Chan. And I'm David Ball. You're listening to CFRO, The Pulse, here on Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. We are your independent daily news show, reporting on the front lines in our community. And we're streaming at thepulse.coopradio.org. Good morning. It's Thursday, November the 5th. Today, we're skipping the headlines to bring you a full interview on, yes, yet again, affordability. I talked to Chris Chung. He's a journalist with the Taiyi, and he writes on the sociology of the city for the media outlet. And this conversation gave me something that I think we often lack in the conversation around affordability, and that's context. Recently, I heard a quote about societal amnesia. We are very concerned about headlines that made the news today or this month, but we forget about the chain of events that got us here in the first place. Chris takes us through provincial housing policies since the 70s. He talked about what we used to do five decades ago to make sure people had homes, how that policy has changed, and how we're seeing the impacts now of decades-old housing policy. Here's Chris. Chris Chang, hey, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Chris, uh, you wrote a really interesting article in the Taiyi uh, a little while ago. Well, you write interesting articles in the Taiyi all the time. I think my favorite one is the Black Lives Man article. <laughs> if folks haven't read that, that article, they definitely need to go back and search for it. Black Lives Man, that's my pitch for Chris's article. Um, but Chris, today let's talk about something less freedom. Let's talk about housing instead. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've just uh, finished the election. We kind of have an idea um, what kind of majority the NDP will have. So, yeah, I hope, you know, we'll, we'll see what they're up to for, for housing in the next three years. Let's step back. Um, let's step back a couple of decades ago, though, because I think there's such interesting context. Let's step back to the 1970s, the period of the 1970s specifically to the early 1990s. And at that point, there was quite a lot of construction of social housing, you pointed out in your article, and I was quite surprised about it. Maybe you can talk a little more about what that looked like. Yeah, so when I was sitting down to write this piece, um, of course, you know, every election, uh, each party comes out with their platform, uh, and you see a bunch of promises, but it's really hard to keep track of, oh, well, what exactly did they do when they were in power? Um, how did that um, change over time? Uh, and if you actually go back and you try to even look at the platforms from 2017, if you try to Google it, you actually won't find a lot of that information um, on, on the Internet anymore. So, um, yeah, just cobbling together from what experts know and also from New York, I tried to paint this picture of, um, okay, the NDP are coming um, this year, 2020, with all these promises. Um, but uh, how how did we get here? Like, what, are, what do they need to address? Like, what did they solve in the last term? So, um I was able to look back and, um, in, you know, post-war, um, there, there seemed to be, so even before the 1970s, this kind of consensus that housing is something that the government needs to be involved in because not everybody um, is able to um, pay for what they consider to be affordable. So affordable 
for a while, it was um, a, a quarter of your income. So it was the idea that for one week uh, of your earnings, you would be able to pay for that month's uh, rent or that month's mortgage for housing. Um, but obviously not everybody could do that. So for the people who can't uh, turn to the market for market housing, whether that's to rent or to buy, the government needs to step in. And so we've got a couple of decades after that that um, the, the province uh, and the feds and also cities, they would they would team up and they would um, all be providing affordable housing for people. Uh, so this is not market housing, this is social housing. This was uh, a lot of co-ops uh, as well. Uh, and so up until the 90s, we actually saw um, you know this partnership working out very, very well, like providing housing for, for these people. Um, but then in 93, uh, I think a lot of people would assume that it's a conservative government uh, in Ottawa that would be the one that's um, turning the tap off of the funding, but it's actually a liberal government. And so that was Paul Martin was liberal in 1993. So they cut funding for all new social housing units. And so after that, it left all the provinces scrambling. You know, this, this agreement from three levels of government was in limbo. Uh, and so almost all provinces actually like halted investment in social housing, except for BC, they tried to hang for a little while. Um, and so that brings us up to, um, I guess, 2001, when the, the BC Liberals came into power. And maybe hang on there for a second, Chris, because you said a lot of interesting things there. Because in your article, you mentioned that between the 1970s and the 1990s, with this joint federal, provincial, and also municipal partnership, we were building between 1,000 to 1,500 new housing units every single year. And you're mentioning, too, with co-op housing, if we counted co-op housing units, that'd be up to almost 2,000 units a year. And that's a significant amount of housing that's... And if that's a standard back then, that's certainly not what we consider to be the norm now anymore. No, no. And if you, um, yeah, it's very hard to get all of this data because every time you get a new party in power, a lot of that gets lost or they try to overestimate uh, what they're actually putting out. Uh, but if you look at it, uh, what experts have, they've, they've graphed social housing um, build, uh, construction over time, and you can see this massive dip um, as we approach the 90s and the 2000s. So, okay, it was a norm back then that we were building a significant amount of new housing units every year. Okay, that's interesting. And then 1993 hits, which, you know, for some of us is a long time ago, but really isn't that long ago. I think you were saying it was the federal, it was Paul Martin with the federal liberals who said, okay, they're taking out the federal portion of spending on new homes. And so now all these promises are, well, we can't do this without the feds. But D.C., you were saying that actually really did try and continue spending and building new social housing. Mm-hmm. So it was an NDP government at the time, actually, and yeah, they were they're trying to keep up um, with two pro- programs. Um, I forgot the names of them, um, but yeah, it was uh, it's quite admirable for a, a province to be trying to keep up with such a massive responsibility. Uh, and if you just think about um, you know what's kind of happening, like in that time, so like post-war, you get more of a welfare state. As the decades go by, you get the, um, small government being a kind of politics that's more popular. Um, so I guess it's not too much of a surprise uh, that the federal government would have chosen to pull out of that responsibility. Okay, so let's walk a little bit further in time. So in 2001, the, li- the provincial liberals take power over from the provincial NDP. And, during, and so the liberals were in power for 16 years, 2001 until 2017. Um, 
We talked about a number of things that we saw during that 16-year period. For one thing, the average home price, not just escalated, it ballooned and volcano, it blew up over that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I guess you can say that, uh, you know, it's the luck of whichever party happens to be in power. But then if you look at um, the kind of policies they ro- roll out to um, and just the optics of their attitude towards that, because, you know, people who aren't able to buy a house, they would look at that and be like, oh, this is terrible. But for people who um, are into investing and trying to profit off of the boom, that actually sounds like good news. And I mean, I think as I'm as I'm going through this interview with you, Chris, I, I mean, I think I'm starting to be able to sound like we're leaning one way or the other politically. But I think we're really trying not to hear, really trying to just stay on the fact and say what has happened during this time. And as you were saying, I mean, it's really whichever party had the luck of being in power when um, when investment in uh, Vancouver's real estate really started ballooning, and I think the Liberals had the uh, unfortunate. Uh, were unfortunate enough, in, in a sense, to be in power during that time. But I think you were saying something that average home prices rose from, what was it, about just over 200000 average in Metro Vancouver to something like $1.4 million. I mean, that's a huge price increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, so we're looking at um, single-family house, like something that, you know, you would think that a, a, a just, you know, just a dad in a working family, if, if he's working some kind of government job, um, like mom can stay home, they could have three kids. That's actually something that's attainable for that kind of an income. So it was attainable. You know, it feels like a long, it feels like now the norm is that no one can afford any, not no one, but many of us can't afford real estate in Metro Vancouver. But it wasn't really that long ago that that was still, it was still possible. But okay, mm-hmm. anyway, the house price went up to one point, the average single family home price in Metro Vancouver went up to $1.4 million during that 16 years. Um, and then what else did we see from the Liberals in terms of spending on housing or housing construction during the 16 years? Yeah, um, I mean, so when they took over from the NDP, uh, their, their um, I guess, responsibility for affordable housing, so they bought some SROs. Uh, they renovated those. But other than that, we didn't really see too much for helping that lower end of the spectrum. Uh, and, you know, you know, we could talk about specific policies, but I think just looking at the overall tone of the kinds of announcements that they make. So in one of the elections, they talk about, um, you know, the middle class dream of home ownership, and they want to make sure that's still attainable. Uh, and we look at the optics of um, who exactly uh, is supporting their party. So we had Bob Rennie, who some people call the, the condo king, um, he's a real estate marketer. Here's the chief fundraiser. You look at the top donors to the party, all of it is real estate interest. And uh, Christy Clark, for a while, um, head of the party and the premier, she kind of brushed off that foreign investor question for a while, that people were worried that there might be too much foreign money um, in our local real estate. So that's making people who work local jobs not able to pay for a you know a local home. Um, so, you know, even like it doesn't look too good, I guess, in terms of optics for them to be um, close to real estate interests. Um, and, you know, while they're playing down that foreign investor question as well, um, Christy Clark uh, and another minister, they actually took a trip to Hong Kong uh, where they met some investors there and also from southern China, I believe, uh, and and try to let them know that, hey, BC is a place that is open for um, investors from abroad. Um, and so that this I think this all you know painted this picture over time um, for a lot of people that were quite 
upset with rising rents and rising house prices that, hey, this really isn't a party that cares for everybody um, on this spectrum of housing need. They only seem to be concerned for people who have money to invest and to be able to, to buy a home. Um, and they actually had some programs, too, for people who are like buying a home for the first time. Okay, so at this point, it's not looking very rosy for liberals in terms of their in terms of what they're doing for affordability. And at the very end of your term, too, you were mentioning that they did something that that really even like, uh, made the Auditor General uh, release a fairly scathing report on the program that the Liberals sold five hundred million dollars worth of social housing. Uh, to nonprofits, and ostensibly that the, the revenues from those sales would fund new housing, new social housing, and expand rental exist, assistance programs. Uh, but there were lots of questions about them selling off that provincially owned social housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in um, you know in in creating housing, um, you know with construction costs um, and all the financing and all that, but people say you know land is the most important thing. You know they don't make more land, uh, whatever land you have, like that's, uh, and yet this was a party throughout their time in power that they were selling a lot of public land. So they had one program where they sold um, over $1 billion of real estate, and so that was um, provincial land that's um, schools, hospitals, and such. Um, and aside from that, the program that you mentioned, um, they were selling off a lot of uh, social housing that they had, and so that was buildings, that was land. Uh, and they, they considered it a, a transfer of property because they weren't just being sold to anybody. These were being sold to um, nonprofit housing operators in the hope that they would um, continue to operate those buildings and those um, residents won't have to go anywhere. What the Auditor General was questioning is that, like, hey, like this doesn't really make sense that you are selling social housing to try and build more social housing. You know, if you already have those assets, like why are you not making the best of it? Uh, and I think what gets confused quite often, you know, everybody says, oh, this is the province selling provincial land, but essentially this is, um, you know, this is public land. These are elected officials who are selling land that is should be looked after in the best interest of, of everybody. Uh, and, yeah, like seeing these programs, people didn't really feel that the party was doing that. That brings us to the end of the Liberals' 16-year term, uh, well, 16-year time in power, and that takes us to 2017, and the NDP takes over at that point. Um, and when the NDP takes over, we see actually a fairly different tone when it comes to housing. First, the school tax, I remember. I live in the west side of Vancouver, and there were very, very many angry homeowners. I saw them in, in crowds in, on fields protesting the school tax. Yeah, that was um if you if you go on Google and you look up the photos of uh, some of the protests, it's uh yeah, they've got signs uh, out and everybody's shouting. People um did a lot of not so nice things about um David E. B. and also a UBC prof named um like Tom uh, Davidoff and they had all these signs that said buzz off, David off and, and so on. So yeah, they they were they were quite upset. And maybe remind our listeners what the school tax was or is because it's still in place. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, I mean, it's, it was called a school tax because the money um, was supposed to be funding schools. Uh, but it, what it actually was, it was a property tax rate for um, expensive property. So properties over $3 million. Uh, and the more, um, I believe, the, the, the pricier your property is, um, the bigger chunk of that gets taxed. Uh, but at the end of the day, like what it is, is it's a wealth tax. 
Um, so what the NDE is trying to signal with something like this, you know, not so much that this money is funding schools, but that if you, you know, if you're lucky enough to uh, make it big and have such a pricey property, you know, we're going to take a little bit of that and and use it in some kind of social spending. So the school tax happened, it's, you know, and people people weren't happy about it, but there it is now; it's in place. And the NDP also did put in a speculation and vacancy tax, which um, which I think was an easier sell politically. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, with with how upset people were um, when the Liberals um, left power, I mean, I think that was a, a big part of why they were voted out. Um, like you, you probably remember, there were a lot of rallies around that time. Like there's a hashtag that went around that's called, you know, don't have a million dollars, you know, saying like not everybody can afford that million dollar home. Um, and so I think that was really responsible for putting the NDP in power. And so, yeah, like, you know, the, the school tax and a speculation and, and vacancy tax, those things sounded, um, I mean, they, I mean, they're very, they were very popular with, uh, BC voters. And I think that was because there was this idea that what was wrong with the housing system is that um, there's a lot of you know very rich players who are making a lot of money over these ballooning prices. But I think what what's really important to keep in mind is that um, a lot of experts have been saying, well, there's no magic tool in the toolbox that's going to be able to solve this crisis. There's no silver bullet. You know, you're not just going to introduce these taxes and then suddenly like housing becomes affordable. Uh, and so what the NDP has stressed and a lot of experts have stressed is that you know housing is a spectrum. You know, we have to take care. Of somebody who's homeless, we have to be we have to take care of, of renters as well. We have to take care of, you know, also those people who want to get their foot into the property market. Um, but we can't just focus on any one piece of this. And if you don't take care of any piece for a very very long time, you know, as we've seen the lag um, since the 90s, um, it's it's not going to go away all of a sudden. So what the NDP is doing with many of the po- with many of the policies that they have been rolling out is trying to address different parts of this spectrum and address that backlog again. Right. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the school tax and the vacancy tax for folks who are not in that higher tax income, I think there's almost like a glee in it. Finally, the wealthy are made to pay more or something like that. But it's important to remember, like you're saying, it's not like taxing the wealthy. It's just magically going to solve all of our problems. It's a it, we, it's actually a fairly complex thing, and so no one should get all too excited just because two two taxes were introduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean even 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 the BC Liberals, you know, at the, at the very end of their term, they they kind of clued in that people were upset and they introduced a foreign buyers tax. Um, but really, you know, you need that you need that full toolkit to address a problem as, as complex as this. Maybe, Chris, this is a good time for us to just speak so briefly about that housing spectrum to really lay it out. So when we think, when we talk about housing spectrum, we're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about folks at the very bottom end of the, the income spectrum. So folks who are on the streets right now and trying to find any type of roof over their head. And then we go all the and then there's uh, housing for folks who are making you know, a lower income, say under, what what's the threshold, under 60? Under 39k a year, folks were making under 77k a year, under 100k a year, and then going all the way up to folks who can afford just single-family homes. So there's there's quite a wide range, and I think it's important to remember that every tool sort of targets different parts of the spectrum. And so yes, one tool will help maybe with all to varying degrees of all levels of the housing spectrum, but not but like you're saying that there's no magic bullet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, we we have the foreign buyers tax, we have, you know, a speculation and vacancy tax. 
but how is that going to help somebody who's on the street like right now? Uh, and so you've you've seen um, you know almost in most big cities you've seen these you know, temporary modular housing. You know that's a big part of the uh, EPs. Uh, housing policies as well. Those are able to be um, assembled really, really quickly, and so we can get people off the street and into a secure home uh, rather fast. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that that need is very different. The need of a renter who can, um, even if they're able to pay like market rate, um, you know, is, are there enough rental units out there for them? If you are a mother, you know, you you have your child or children with you, and you are playing violence, and you need a home. Like, is there that kind of home for you as well. So, you know, there's very, very specific needs all along the spectrum. And, you know, that's why it's so important to look at this um, all at once, not just, you know, addressing one particular chunk of it. So between 2017 and 2020, which is when the NDP uh, was empowered your first term, you, you detailed that they did build something like 3,070 housing units specifically for people who are on the streets right now, to people who are experiencing homelessness. And you also made mention that they did also build something like significant, about 9,800 units for folks who are making under 74,000, including the folks who, are, who currently do have a roof over their heads, thank goodness, um, but are on the lower end of the, of the spectrum. And I'm just curious if you could just just um, describe that for our listeners. So were the, those homes that were built specifically for folks who are, who do, who are making, say, under 70,000, are those... What does that look like? Is that new co-op housing? Is that new apartment buildings? Oh, what form does that take? Or maybe I'm putting your spot there. And we yeah, yeah. Look at <laughs> I'll have to take a look at it again. Uh, but a lot of it was done um, as part of partnerships. Um, so, yes, there's there's some co-ops as well, but sometimes they partner with um, a church. So, for example, if there's a church um, you know, they have a lot of land and they want to build, um, like, housing on it. They've uh, A lot of them have actually been, um, yeah, partnering with the province on that. So, uh, yeah, a lot of different parties that, you know, they they have the land, they want to get into housing, but they might not have the financing. That's where the, the province um, would step in. And there's different funding for different organizations that might be providing to different kinds of needs. So if you are, um, like, you know, the YWCA, for example, and you want – housing for um, for those mothers, you know, they could partner with the province. Um, or, you know, if you are an indigenous housing provider uh, and you're, you know, you serve um, indigenous people, um, the province also had a, a program for that. And I want to talk about one ratio that you brought up in your article, which is quite troubling to me. You talked about how for every one unit built in D.C., that can be rented for under $750, three such units are being destroyed. So it's that, yes, we're adding new units to the market that are affordable to folks who are at the lower end of the income spectrum, but market forces and other things are also actively taking away such units. So we're not building units as quickly or making units available as quickly as they're being taken away. Um, I think that figure came from Jill Atkey, the CEO of the Nonprofit Housing Association. That's right. Um, so I think, you know, for, I'll, I'll give you one example. And so um, there is not too much housing right now for seniors just because um, that stock is, has, has not been addressed, like, for so many years. Um, and so the, the government, they have a, actually have a program called SAFER. And so what that is is, um, you know, we know that there's not enough social housing right now for seniors. So instead, we're going to let you rent um, something from the market. If you find an apartment, if you find 
um, you know, a suite in a house, um, that's great because that unit is there and we'll pay you a little bit of money to help make up for that difference that you can't afford. So this is just showing that we've, we've relied on markets so much um, for housing, you know, that uh, even the government now is, is, you know, embracing the fact that, hey, like we need whatever units we can that are out there to house people because we don't have something that's purpose-built for seniors. Maybe in my last minute with you, Chris, I want to ask, what are your thoughts on what's next? What can what can folks all along the housing spectrum, from the very end, renters, uh, folks with a little more money, folks looking to buy single fam- apartment units or single-family homes, uh, what can they expect, you think, in the next four years of this NDP government? And what are you personally keeping an eye out for? Yeah, so... Um... There are some people that you will talk to. Uh, for example, I've, I've spoken with the former mayor of Burnaby once about affordable housing, and he, and he was just like, oh, don't blame me. Like, affordable housing, is, it's a provincial responsibility. You know, it's a federal responsibility. Um, but sometimes you get fingers pointed the other way, where it's like, oh, well, cities should do whatever they can to try and provide affordable housing. Um, so there is this limbo still, like, of, of who exactly is supposed to be taking care of um, people who can't pay, like, market prices for, for housing. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that, well, for renters, renters are um, creatures of the province. It's defined by the Residential uh, Tenancy Act. So this is definitely a provincial responsibility. And so, um, you know, right now with, with rents going um, so high and the stock being so low, uh, the province, the, the NDP so far have been really trying to balance keeping landlords happy and keeping uh, renters happy as well. But then came COVID, and so um, you know, for a while they tried to um, they tried to offer like what they can to renters. Um, they said, you know, if you can't pay that rent, like it's fine. Uh, but on but in September they're saying, oh well, uh, renters, you have until uh, next summer, I believe it is, to pay it all back to the landlord. And so I've been talking to some advocates, and they were really upset with that because they they see that oh well if you know, there's so many other industries out there that have been hit, people, you know, who run hotels, people who are in tourism. How come the government um, is looking at housing as this industry that needs to be compensated? Um, so it's this, um, I think, really interesting question. Each party can throw out, you know, tons and tons of policies, but I think at the end of the day is their philosophy of what they consider housing to be. Is it just something that's an investment? Uh, is it something that uh, people should, you know, be able to buy at some point in their life, like the liberals keep on signaling to, uh, or is it something that is a human right? And so if they consider it as a human right, do they then have the policies to back that up? Um, and so I think that that philosophy question is, is the most interesting thing to me about each party, um, because, you know, rising home prices, some people would see that as, as great news, you know, but a lot of people would see that as bad news as well. And so where, where governments, I think, take a stand on these issues, um, really say a lot about what kind of people do they um, prioritize in, in their policy. Chris, thank you so much for the chat today. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the next time we chat about housing or about something else, Chris. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll talk about food. <laughs> That'd be you. great. And that was Chris Chung, who writes on the sociology of the city for the Taiyi. Chris talked to us about how our lack of affordability now is linked to decades of provincial housing policy. 
that's it for today. You're listening to The Pulse on CFRRO. We're super local morning news show here on Vancouver Court Radio 100.5 FM. I'm Tan Macy, and as always, please tell us what you think of the show. We're super curious. I'm at Macy at coopradio.org. That's M-E-I-X-I at coopradio.org. Ciao. Take care. And that's our program for CFRO. The Pulse, your independent news show reporting on the front lines in our community. Every weekday, 7 a.m. here on Vancouver Co-op Radio. Find our previous podcasts and interviews at thepulse.coopradio.org. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.